Lexicon Valley is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 72, titled A Cat, a Coward, and Female Genitalia, wherein we discuss the historical quirkiness of the word pussy. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing, buddy? Splendid. Thank you. And your own self? I'm great. I'm great. Bobby, you may remember some weeks back, we did an episode about the F word. At some point during our conversation, you offered a very brief but apparently impressionable critique of people who euphemize or soften swear words, people who say things like effing this or who say, as I just did, the F word instead of the word fuck itself. Here, in fact, is exactly what you said. I have a number of uh, friends and acquaintances who just can't pull the trigger and they'll say effing this. And I'm like, look, what is the point of not uttering the vulgarity? That's what you're going for. Why pull up short like that? It's kind of a pussy way to communicate. So, Bob, does anything jump out at you there? Uh, Well, I said, I asserted that I have a number of friends and acquaintances, and, you know, I may, may have exaggerated <laughs> there. It's a, it, The number is, you know, it's an integer. Okay. Well, a number of our listeners were struck by something else that you said. One listener named Adriana Langston went to the trouble, believe it or not, of sending us an audio response. Here's what Adriana had to say. Hello, Bob Garfield. This is Adriana from Long Beach, California. And yesterday I was listening to the latest episode of Lexicon Valley about the history of the word F-U-C-K. It was a great episode. At the end of the episode, you described friends that you know who want to use the word but can't bring themselves to say it. So they say effing this and effing that. And you said they couldn't pull the trigger. And then you went on to just say this about them. It's kind of a pussy way to communicate. And I thought about what you said, and I suspect that what you meant to convey was that it was a weak way to communicate. And that makes sense because pussies, little kittens, are actually weak creatures. I don't think you could have been referring to the human female vagina because as everyone knows, that organ is capable of stretching wide enough to accommodate the passage of an eight to 10 pound baby, not only without ripping or tearing, but after a few weeks going back to its original shape. So there isn't anything weak about that. Of course, if you did mean to use a vulgar synonym for the human female vagina as a synonym for weakness, that was kind of a dick move. Do you see what I did there? First of all, Thank you, Adriana. We are both lucky and honored 
to have you as a listener. You took issue with Bob's use of the word pussy, and you did so not only with cleverness, but with humor and even a playful little jab at you, Bob, the you see what I did there line at the end, which is something that you like to trot out after a joke. Yeah, yeah. Adriana deserves the shout out, and I certainly can't find fault with her for finding fault with me exactly. I mean, I'd sort of like to do what I've occasionally done in traffic court, which is to admit guilt, but with mitigating circumstances. Well, let me give you one more reaction from another listener. This one came by email from a woman named Claire, and I'll read and paraphrase some of what she wrote. She said, I first listened to this episode a couple of days ago, and for some reason, Bob's use of the word pussy in a derogatory fashion has stuck with me. I've been trying to give you the benefit of the doubt, thinking that such a person so seemingly self-aware of his language could only have been using the term satirically. However, after listening to the end of the episode a couple of times over, I am less and less certain of Bob's semantic intentions. I love listening to people discuss their passions for language, especially in a show as lovely as Lexicon Valley, but there simply is no room in my podcast listening routine for misogynistic negativity. She then goes on to say that she doesn't appreciate anatomical parts of women's bodies being, quote, equated with traits such as cowardice, incompetence, and inferiority. Now, Bob, you responded to Claire. Let us please hear what you told her. You want me to read it aloud? (laughs) Well, if you read it to yourself, then our (laughs) listeners aren't really going to hear it. I meant you want me to read it as opposed to you. Sure. Let me preface this by saying I also appreciate Claire's generosity to have been so disgusted and yet to have had the instinct to give me the benefit of the doubt. And we shall see through the course of this conversation whether I deserve that benefit. But here's what I wrote to Claire. Thanks for the note. I don't recall exactly my semantic intentions. Most likely, I was being some combination of ironic and hyperbolic. However, I do sometimes use the word in exactly the way that concerns you to denote weakness and cowardice, because that's what it means. I get that it imputes those traits to women and that it is rooted in the negative connotation of girly, but I think the epithet has long since stood on its own, more or less divorced from misogyny, like dick, prick, douchebag, and in the UK at least, the C word. So, yes, I'm guilty, although not necessarily in that particular instance. I hope that doesn't disappoint you too much, but it is true. Thank you for listening, and thank you for sharing yours, Bob. Okay, so you said some things, Bobby, Adriana, Claire, they said some things. Assumptions were made, accusations, perhaps even an implied threat. Claire did, after all, end her email with the following somewhat ominous sentence. She said, I look forward to receiving reassurance from the Lexicon Valley team regarding your intentions of using pussy in a derogatory way. Okay, let's talk about pussy. 
there are at least three etymological historical quirks with regard to this word. Permit me, please, to, before I present my defense, to speak to the jury with an opening argument that will kind of foreshadow where I'm going. And that is to acknowledge, as I did to Claire, that there are clearly misogynistic roots to the word pussy that impute a lack of courage to women, which, of course, is silly. I meant no such thing. I have the utmost of respect for women and for vaginas themselves because, as Adriana points out, they do some yeoman work during childbirth, and I in no way, in no way believe that women are the weaker sex. So it's not coming from there. And I believe I will show you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, in the fullness of time that I'm on pretty solid linguistic grounds here. And I guess, Mike, uh, you can proceed with the freaking prosecution. (laughs) Okay. Let's begin with an Englishman named Philip Stubbs, who in the late 1500s was a pamphleteer. Mr. Stubbs was a very opinionated gentleman, and one of his more famous tracts, I guess you could call them, was titled An Anatomy of Abuses. And in this, he cataloged in great detail what he considered the many sins of his compatriots. So he argued from, I guess, what we would call nowadays a fundamentalist Christian perspective. He argued against things like gambling and alcohol, but also the theater and the very ungodly ways in which the people of England dressed and behaved and comported themselves just generally. Basically everything. A Bible-thumping moral scold. Yes. And this particular polemic, An Anatomy of Abuses, was told in the form of a dialogue between two men, Spudius and Philoponus. Now, Spudius, which means zealous one, by the way, he more or less serves as the interlocutor who goads Philoponus, which means love of toil. You can see this is pretty heavy-handed. He goads Philoponus into these extended rants. Some of them are about whoredom and adultery and brothelry. So this is the context, Bob, in which we happen to find one of the earliest examples of pussy in the English language. Let me explain. Philoponus moves on at some point from a discussion about whoredom, and he starts talking about the overly liberal, as he calls them, marriage practices in England. He says that people are marrying too young and having children before they can afford them. And this is resulting in what he calls, and I'm paraphrasing here, a permanent growing underclass of poor people. And he says, and this is a direct quote, he says, little infants in swaddling clothes, he's exaggerating, little infants in swaddling clothes are often married by their ambitious parents and friends when they know neither good nor evil. And this is the origin of much wickedness and directly against the word of God. You shall have every saucy boy of 10, 14, 16, or 20 years of age to catch up a woman and marry her without any respect had either to her religion, wisdom, integrity of life, or any other virtue. What's more, without any respect, how they may live together with sufficient maintenance for their callings and estate. 
No, no, it maketh no matter these things, so long as he have, this theoretical saucy boy, so long as he have his pretty pussy to huggle, for that is the only thing he desireth. First of all, it's nice to know that Rick Santorum has intellectual forebears. Yeah, yeah. He had his constituency in the 1500s, for sure. <laughs> uh, what a relief. But my second observation is, I don't necessarily think he's talking about possessing her vagina. I think he's talking about the whole young woman as his pussy, his pet, his barely human possession. Precisely. So a couple of things. First of all, the word huggle, in case that jumped out at you, the word huggle is an English dialect word. It means exactly what it sounds like, to hug and cuddle, to snuggle. But yes, pretty pussy is not being used. This is Philip Stubbs, after all, a man of righteous, intense virtue. It is not being used as a vulgar term for a woman's vagina. The earliest examples that we have of pussy in English, which are from the late 1500s, are used to denote, as the Oxford English Dictionary says, a girl or woman exhibiting characteristics associated with a cat, especially sweetness or amiability. All right, Mike, I'm confused about something here. You say that the late 1500s is the first time the word pussy shows up in print, in this case to describe the kind of feline, pet-like characteristics of a young woman. But had it never appeared just to describe a pussycat, a cat, the animal, putting aside any comparisons to women altogether? That is an excellent point, and that is etymological quirk number one. So pussy, pussy, derives from puss plus that y suffix. Now puss, as a pet name for a cat, predates all of this. It goes back to the early 1500s. But when pussy enters the language in the late 1500s, it's first used, as far as we can tell from the known written record, it's first used to describe a woman in exactly the way that Philip Stubbs uses it, and only later an actual cat, which is kind of weird, right? That, that is kind of weird. And I wish I had you know, learned about this during discovery because I would have used it to prepare my defense. But okay. It suggests a certain level of intrinsicness, which I may or may not want to uh, claim as uh, evidence in support of me. But, yeah, hold the thought. You say there's two more quirks? So later on in Pussy's evolution, it does attach to the actual cat. And it does also become a word to describe a woman's vagina. So which of those happens when and which comes first? This is etymological quirk number two. We don't know which of those came first, the cat or the vagina, because the earliest known citation for the cat and the earliest known citation for the vagina are the same citation. What? Why would that be? Take a guess. Uh, I, I'm at a loss. A double entendre. Ah. Obviously, at this stage, everything sounds dirty to me, uh, but I am curious to know what the example is of the double entendre. Body verse was uh, already a fixture of literature by then, so I can't say I'm surprised, but I am curious to know what the citation is. Okay, we will find out what that citation is in just a moment, but first, Lexicon Valley is brought to you by The Message 
a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, we're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now, uh, sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But you know, I'm not gonna mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. Okay, so in the late 1600s, about a century later, there lived an Englishman named Thomas Durfee. Durfee was a poet and a playwright and a songwriter, and he wrote, as you're predicting, a lot of what are called country songs. These are frequently very sexually suggestive, lewd, perhaps. Some of these might be considered inappropriate even today. So one of these songs is told from the perspective of an older man, he's in his 60s, who has married a much younger woman. She's only 18. This young lady has, for some days, been pouty and irritable. And when the man asks her why, she tells him that he is neglecting her cat. He is not feeding her cat, and her cat is starving. Mm -hmm. Got it. I think Bessie Smith expressed the same sentiments about 400 years later. The song is essentially one long double entendre, as you'll hear. He says, quote, A pretty young kitty she had that could purr. T'was gamesome and handsome and had a rare fur. And straight up I took it and offered to stroke it in hopes I should make it kind. Now, the young woman whose name is Cloris. What's her name? Cloris. Oh, my God. <laughs> but of course it is. Uh, who wrote this? Was it Seinfeld? <laughs> right. So Cloris implores the man to go fetch John. He's the man, she says, that knows how to feed her cat. Now, if you look in the Dictionary of Sexual Language and Imagery in Shakespearean and Stuart Literature, as I did. I know what you're going to say next. You're going to say that back then, Dick wasn't Dick. Dick was John. Yes, you will find John listed in this dictionary as a euphemism for penis. Do you mean dictionary or do you mean Johnsonary? <laughs> yes, exactly. And so the song ends like this. As fleet as my feet could convey me, I sped to Johnny, who many times pussy had fed. I told him my errand. He wanted no warrant but hasted to show his skill. He took it to stroke it, and close in his lap, he laid it to feed it and gave it some pap. And with such a passion, it took the collation, its belly began to fill. And now within door is, so merry my Cloris, she laughs and grows wondrous fat. And I run for John, who's the man that can, though I'm at a distance, give present assistance to please her, and feed her cat. 
So you see in this song from 1699, we get the earliest example we know of for pussy as cat, and we also get, winkingly, the earliest example that we know of for pussy as vagina. Which brings us to your use of the word pussy, Bob. Yeah, my use of the word pussy, which, once again, mea culpa or mea vulva, I don't know what, but I was using to suggest lack of fortitude, which is, of course, the common slang meaning uh, when you're not actually talking about a four-legged animal. So the OED defines this usage as a sweet or effeminate male, in later use, a weakling, a coward, a sissy. And now, etymological quirk number three. It wasn't until the very early 1900s that we have any evidence of pussy being used to describe a man. And the first example that we know of is from a 1904 novel called God's Good Man, A Simple Love Story. This book is by an English woman named Marie Corelli. Corelli doesn't sound like an English novelist from the early 20th century because it was a pen name. Her real name was Mary McKay. You don't really need a lot of context here, Bob. Just know that a woman in the novel is talking about a dinner party, and she says, I shall invite Rocksmith and his tame pussy, Mr. Marius Longford. So a little later in the early 1900s, in the novel Arrowsmith by Sinclair Lewis, a nurse says to Martin Arrowsmith, who's training to be a doctor, she says, you ought to hear some of the docs that are the sweetest old pussies with their patients, the way they bawl out the nurses. You see, contrary to what we might assume today, when pussy was first used to describe a man as sweet or even weak or tame, it didn't have anything to do with the vagina, right? It was an allusion to cat-like domestication. Mm-hmm. I'd like to seize on that and say I am off the hook. I'd like a directed verdict and to be sent on my way. But the truth is that certainly was nowhere in my mind when I used it. I, I can't use that as my get-out-of-jail-free. So why do we think that when we use pussy to mean a coward or a weakling that it's sexually derived, right, and therefore sexually offensive? Here's probably why. Because by the 1930s, pussy became vulgar slang, not simply for the anatomical female genitalia, but as a kind of stand-in for sexual intercourse itself, right? And the earliest example we have of this is from the 1937 novel, by Jerome Weidman, it's probably more well-known as a musical from the 60s, the novel I Can Get It For You Wholesale. This was about Jews in the garment district in New York City. And a character in the novel says about a fight that broke out during a union strike, he says, I wouldn't miss a second of this for all the pussy in Paris. Here you can see it's being used not to denote exactly the vagina, but to denote a desire for sex. Yeah, and it is reductive in the most misogynistic way, right? It reduces women to merely their vaginas and is undiscriminating. Let's go out, get some beers, and get some pussy. It has nothing to do with character or individual traits. It is simply a commodified sexual opportunity bereft of any soul whatsoever. So, yeah, it's a sexist a formulation as it gets. Right. And this is exactly the usage that 
The Onion was employing in 2012 in one of my favorite Onion pieces. This was in October of 2012, just before President Barack Obama was to debate Mitt Romney. And the article is about the advice that Joe Biden gave Obama before the debate. And it begins, (laughs) noting that tonight's debate against Mitt Romney would last a full hour and a half, Vice President Joe Biden... (laughs) reportedly urged President Obama to, quote, rub one out so that he could, quote, get pussy off the mind before taking the stage. (laughs) Giving the same advice that Chris Elliott gave uh, Ben Stiller in Something About Mary. (laughs) So in the hands of The Onion, it becomes satirically very funny, but in the mouth of a young man, as you suggested, Bob, it's entirely objectifying. And so this sexual use of pussy, which starts in the 1930s, became more and more popular throughout the 20th century, which means at the very least, it became harder and harder to separate out the sexually demeaning uses of pussy from other uses. But it's quite possible that the sexual uses even influenced and strengthened the coward weakling use. And I can see how they would be sort of synergistic in that way. But to paraphrase Mark Twain, who said the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between lightning and a lightning bug, I would say that the difference between pussy and a pussy is the same as between lightning and a lightning bug. They're going in very, very different directions. All right. So for me, in evaluating what this means for you, Bob, and your penchant to sometimes use pussy to denote cowardice, as you told our listener, Claire, because that's what it means, in evaluating this, I consulted our friend, Catherine Martin, who is a lexicographer with Oxford. We had an email exchange, and I want to quote for you a few what I think are very pertinent points that she made. First off, she says, over time, the explicitly sexual genitalia-related senses of pussy have become a more central part of the word's meaning and colonized the previously innocent use referring to cat-like qualities. She then goes on to say, and this is what I think is most important, She says that a person calling a man a pussy in 1925 probably didn't have the same image in mind as one does in 2015. But we can't easily draw a bright line in the historical record to distinguish these into two senses because they blend into one another. After all, calling a man a pussy is not terribly different from calling him a girl. The insult doesn't require a sexual element. That, for me, Bob, is why I think you're wrong. Well, I appreciate her observation. I mean, I wish you had dug up a lexicographer from, you know, a less of a fly-by-night operation, (laughs) Oxford English Dictionary. I mean, seriously, who are they? But I think you were eliding over the issue here, and that is the distance from the misogynistic insult that pussy has acquired over the years. And let me give you my defense for occasionally calling somebody a pussy, by the way, always in jest. 
I always use it for shock value, not because I'm truly indignant, but in any event, I do it. Let me tell you about that by first telling you about an exchange I had on Twitter about a year or two ago with someone who approached me enraged about me using the word hysterical, either on Lexicon Valley or on on the media or somewhere else in my writing. Don't you know where that comes from? The essence of my response, and this went back and forth for some while, was, yeah, I know where it comes from. It's from the Greek word for uterus, and hysteria was a negative attribute imputed to women, but it really hasn't meant that except to show-offs for about a thousand years. And then the common usage that someone has simply lost his or her equanimity has absolutely nothing to do with the woman's uterus or any traits that are supposed to derive therefrom. And I think there is a continuum of sexually derived language where perhaps hysterical is on one far end, completely divorced from its original roots. And on the other side, maybe bitches and hoes, which is truly derogatory and sexist with no other explanation for it. And I think somewhere, not in the middle, but towards the hysterical side of the spectrum, resides pussy. While I acknowledge where it came from, I think it has just become a default slang term to describe someone weak of will, unintrepid or whatever, without having to carry the baggage of, of sexism. Now, maybe I've taken too many liberties or assumed too much. Maybe, as they say, it's too soon to make that assumption. But that's my case, you know, and I throw myself upon the mercy of the court. The defense rests. Bob, whether or not hysterical is, in fact, all the way at one end of the spectrum, I think is very debatable. I don't think that that's a word, certainly not in the public sector, that you can use about a woman and have it sound utterly devoid of sexism. That said, I think what this boils down to is how you are comfortable being perceived. Because to a certain set of 21st century ears, who may or may not even be familiar with the various etymological threads of pussy and the historical record and the various citations that I just spun for you, to a certain set of 21st century ears, using that word in the way that you use it to steal a joke from our listener, Adriana, makes you sound like a dick. Yeah, and I defend to the death my right to sound like a dick for (laughs) using the very perfect formulation, pussy, (laughs) just as I defend your right to call me a dick because I take too much license and don't respect the sensibilities of 100% of the audience. So I actually, in a way, think we have circled around to agree. Mike, I'm not a misogynist. I'm just a dick. (laughs) Okay, well, if you want to write in to let us know whether or not you think Bob is a dick for using the word pussy, you can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley. And please subscribe to our feed in the iTunes store. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. All right, Mikey. We done here? Yep, we are done. Later, you fucking... 
alligator 